Welcome to Travels in a Mathematical World, a podcast from the Institute of Mathematics and its Applications, the IMA. My name is Peter Rollett. This is episode 9. 9 is prime, and excluding 1, for which the case is trivial, 9 is the smallest number which is equal to the sum of the digits of its square. This week on the podcast is the first of two instalments from Dr. Adrian Bowyer, who talks through some of the areas his career has taken him into. Uh, my name's Adrian Bowyer. I'm a senior lecturer in the Mechanical Engineering Department of Bath University at the moment, and um, that's where I've ended up. I also started out as a mechanical engineer, uh, but I've done an awful lot of things in between. Um, I did an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering at Imperial, and then stayed on to do a PhD. And my PhD was on the mechanism of frictional vibration. Uh, which sounds very fancy. Uh, the technical term for it is stick-slip, but what everybody knows is the squeal of brakes or the music of the violin, that phenomenon. Um, and it's caused by the fact that everybody learns in school physics that the static coefficient of friction between objects generally tends to be higher than the dynamic coefficient. So once something starts slipping, it carries on doing so the object that's causing it to slip will have some elasticity, the energy stored in the elastic will be dissipated, and so the slip eventually comes to a halt. And so it sticks, and then it slips, sticks and slips, and so on. Anyway, I did a lot of experiments on that, and I also did some mathematical modelling of it, and wrote computer programs to model it. And I was, if I may claim this, the first person to take an ordnance survey map of a piece of steel, and then figure out what would happen if you were to scrape it over itself. Which is to say, we digitised uh, the rough surface of a piece of steel, and when I say rough, of course, steel isn't that rough when it's forming a bearing. Um, it's a microscopic rough surface. Uh, as I say, we took one of those maps, in fact, sorry, we took two of them, we turned one upside down, squashed them together, and worked out what would happen if you tried to slide them one over another. And much to my surprise and delight, they did actually stick-slip. They produced the vibration that I was trying to study. <laughs> and so um, we had not only a, a, a mathematical model at the macroscopic scale, in the computer we had a microscopic detailed mathematical model of what was going on uh, in this phenomenon. And uh, I got my PhD for that in 1979, 1980, somewhere around about that point. Uh, you can see that it's so long ago that I've forgotten the precise <laughs> year. Um, when I finished doing research, though, and rather before I was awarded the degree, I then moved to the University of Bath to join the mathematics department. Um, I decided I'd had quite a few years of engineering, and so I wanted a bit of a change. And they were running a, a research project on uh, stochastic computational geometry. Uh, they were looking at the statistical study of random and ordered pattern, mostly in two-dimensional phenomena, but also some three-dimensional ones. A uh, typical sort of thing that we might be studying is the distribution of the nests of a bird, which is a territorial species, that sort of thing. And we were using uh, Voronoi diagrams to map out such territorial uh, behaviour in animals, uh, but it's much more widely applicable than that. For example, you can use exactly the same geometrical structure uh, to analyse um, crystal growth uh, around nuclei. And once one thinks, oh, crystals grow around nuclei, oh, birds beat out a territory centred on their nest, you can see that there's a certain uh, similarity between these two apparently very disparate phenomena. Um, 
I devised uh, an algorithm uh, during that time, which is called, now called the Bowyer-Watson algorithm. Uh, Watson is an Australian, and it's an interesting coincidence. He devised exactly the same algorithm, unknown to me, and he, I was unknown to him, at uh, exactly the same time. Um, and we both sent our papers on this to the computer journal at the same time. <laughs> And the editor, presumably, I never quite got to hear about this, but the editor was then presumably presented with a difficulty. He had these two apparently identical papers from two people at Antipodean points on the earth. (laughs) (laughs) What was he to do then? Anyway, he made the only fair decision, and I'm very grateful to him, he published them both. Um, So we had two papers written by different people, neither of whom knew of the other's work, uh, on the same phenomenon in the same issue of the computer journal. And as a consequence, the algorithm, which is now very widely used, both academically and industrially, uh, is known by our two names, even though we've never met. Uh, Though we have had brief correspondence, of course. Um, And so uh, that was that. Um, And at that point, microcomputers were just starting to come in. This was at the beginning of the 1980s. And uh, the university was setting up a microcomputer Uh, services department to offer support to the rest of the university with these newfangled devices and I my contract in the mathematics department came to an end and I was quite a computing person so I was offered the job of of running that uh, service section and it was quite fun at the time because of course you couldn't buy very much off the shelf so we ended up designing computers and building them from the chips up for various applications um, both as consultants to outside industry who come to the university to get problems solved and also for departments uh, in the university who wanted things which are now completely straightforward like data loggers Um, in those days you had to make them with a soldering iron and uh, also write the software to drive them and I did that for four years And then the engineering department here, and this is where I came back to engineering, uh, had a job uh, going a lectureship, and I thought that I would apply for that, particularly as they asked me to apply. It seemed like a good strategy. And so so I did, and they didn't give me the job, which I was a bit miffed about because they'd asked me to apply. Um, But the reason they didn't give me the job was because they had a better one coming along in three months, and they wanted me to apply for that rather than the one that they'd originally asked me to apply for. So I did apply for that, and I did get it. And I joined a group here, uh, which was headed up at that time by uh, a person who's now an old friend of mine, John Woodock, who was one of the pioneers in the field of geometric modelling, which is modelling three-dimensional shapes for computer-aided design systems, how the mathematics and the computing of representing shape are done. And he and I worked for many years on various aspects of of that problem. Uh, Subsequently, he left the university to go and join IBM to work for them. And then after that, after he spent some time there uh, as their graphics manager, uh, he uh, set up his own company. And I, in fact, became a director of that company, uh, publishing books on computing, geometry and mathematics. Um, But that was obviously a part-time thing. Meanwhile, my main research was, again, the geometry that goes into computer-aided design systems and how to represent that geometry in the computer. And there's uh, an interesting piece of evolution that has happened in that area in that the mathematically obvious way to do that representation is not the way that in practice the systems use. If you ask a mathematician how might you represent complicated shapes with flat surfaces and round bits and curved bits and so on, they say, they think about it for a while, and the the solution they usually come up with is a sort of three-dimensional Venn diagram. 
Uh, so you take intersections and unions and spheres and cubes and and so on, and you can build, as you can imagine, an arbitrarily complicated shape by repeatedly doing that. Um, and that is a method of modelling geometry for computer-aided design. Uh, it's called CSG, short for Constructed Solid Geometry, or Boolean Modelling, obviously parallels between Boolean algebra and set theory. Um, but as I say, though that is used in research environments and was one of the technologies that was first proposed for solving this problem, it's not the one that in practice the vast majority of commercial systems use. They use something which is not at all intuitive, uh, which is to represent the boundary of the object rather than the solid as, as, as a set theoretic Venn diagram. Um, uh, they say, well, objects have got edges and faces and um, uh, those edges have vertices which form corners of the object and so on, we'll stitch all those together in some horrible data structure and represent the solid in that way. Um, if you do that, you can use Euler's formula to figure out whether you've really got a solid or not, mm. in general, though it starts to get a bit funny when you have spheres and so on, and you have to find yourself having to put uh, uh, lines and corners on spheres in order to make them correspond with the topology that you'd expect from Euler. Um, but nonetheless, you can do that, and you can set up robust computer systems that will represent solids uh, by representing the surface, and they're called, for obvious reasons, boundary representation models. And you've got these two competing technologies. You've got the elegant set theoretic one, which never took off, a little bit like the Apple Mac of geometric modeling, if you like. And then you've got the rather uglier, but practically largely implemented boundary representation, which did take off, and that's the IBM PC, or the, the Windows PC uh, of the world. And so um, uh, you've got this interesting competition between the, these two. Um, and there's... I don't know how you decide whether which technology succeeds in these sorts of uh, areas. Um, but there, there's a very interesting statistical experiment um, called the Polyurn experiment, uh, which uh, many people will be familiar with, I'm sure, uh, where you take a, take a vessel and you place within it uh, a black marble and a white marble, and then you reach in with your eyes closed, take out a marble, look at it, and put it back in with another marble of the same colour. Now, a legitimate question to ask is, if you repeat that process a thousand times, what is your expected proportion of white to black marbles? Mm. Clearly you've got a thousand marbles, not a thousand and two marbles in the, in the urn. Um, what, uh, what, what is the proportion that you'd expect? And naively you might guess, well, it might average out 50-50 most likely, and what sort of distribution would you get? So it actually turns out that all the possible proportions are equally probable, yes. which is a very interesting thing. And, of course, if you plot a graph of the ratio to the white and the black marbles as this progress, as this selection process progresses, um, you discover that very quickly it settles down to a straight line, because clearly the probability of taking a marble out of a certain colour depends upon the proportion of the two colours that you've got in the urn. Uh, so you've got something that produces a dead straight line on a graph where the gradient is completely arbitrary, and it depends entirely on the initial conditions. And um, there is... I guess a great deal of evidence that many phenomena in the real world may be rather like that, such as the proportion of Apple Macs to IBM PCs. Mm -hmm. uh, the number of them depends upon the current ratio in the population, and that ratio must have started off with two original machines, mm -hmm. like the two marbles in the end. Uh, other things, um, for example, the ratio of brown eyes to blue eyes in the population, a genetically determined trait, um, which, uh, now this is not quite the case, uh, 
might be subject to an equally uh, random proportionality. I say it's not quite the case because, of course, sexual selection kicks in there because blue eyes are considered more attractive than brown eyes, and so the proportions you might expect not to stay exactly as you would expect from a polyurone type process. Anyway, the two types of geometric representation for computer-aided design systems may have decided upon their proportions by that sort of process, who knows. And I worked in that for a number of years. I hope you enjoyed listening to that. You can hear more from Adrian next week on the podcast in part two. You can find out more about the podcast at www.travelsinamathematicalworld.co.uk. Uh, so point your friends to that address. Thank you for listening.